What exactly does it mean to take God's name in vain? Is it possible that millions of people are breaking the third commandment and they don't even know it? I don't think you're going to want to miss today's edition of The Voice of Prophecy. Welcome to another edition of The Voice of Prophecy. My name is Sean Boonstra, and we'll be spending about the next half hour together. I don't know if you've noticed the trend, but some modern Christians seem to think that spicing up their language with a little profanity makes them more, well, relatable, more real than some of their stuffier counterparts. In some circles, it's actually now considered cool for Christians to swear. Oh, not the big swear words, but little ones. And and sometimes the argument goes that, well, modern curse words aren't even in the Bible. You can't find them there, so we shouldn't get too uptight about this. You know, if there's one thing we're really good at, it's rationalizing our behavior. Even though Christianity has almost universally agreed on the undesirable nature of cussing, and we've agreed on that for a long, long time, For just a moment, let me play the devil's advocate. I I wish there was a better expression for that, but let me play the devil's advocate for just a moment and ask a few questions about why certain words are acceptable and other words are taboo. Well, the way I learned it in etymology class, it has something to do with the Roman occupation of Europe. As the Romans conquered one barbarian tribe after another, they promoted the use of their own language, which was Latin. Now, not only did they promote that, they tried to teach conquered people to prefer the Latin language over their own Germanic languages. And so, Latin became the language of learning and culture. You had to learn it if you wanted to make your way up through Roman civilization. Now, if you go back and look at the roots of various English words, you'll find that most of the words we consider crude or base or undesirable actually have Germanic roots and their more acceptable counterparts have Latin roots. The way we divided up our language has everything to do with social status. So, for example, if a man is working in the sun and there's moisture pouring down his forehead, you and I call that sweat. But that's a monosyllabic word with Germanic roots. Even today, there are people who don't want us to know they sweat. They don't like that word. Instead, they call it perspiration, which comes from the word perspire, a word with Latin roots. Now, sweat isn't a curse word, but it is an example I can use on the air, and it illustrates how some words come to be less desirable. And of course, what we consider to be bad language does change from time to time, so that words our grandparents found objectionable don't seem all that inappropriate anymore, and language they considered normal can actually become unacceptable to us. The intent of foul language is to shock people, to degrade, to offend, and that's where Christians run into trouble when they adopt the undesirable linguistic trends of the people around them. They still have to contend with the Bible's instruction to avoid corrupt communication and obscene talk. If your intention is to shock people, if your intention is to offend, then it's still probably out of bounds. And I'll be the first to admit that from time to time I have lost my temper and I've said things I regret. My own speech is anything but perfect. 
But to say that swearing is somehow acceptable for the Christian? Now look, biblically speaking, it's not. And it's especially not acceptable when it falls under that category of cursing that violates the third commandment. And now I'm talking about the expletives we use that actually involve the name of God. Not surprisingly, in a secular culture, we're beginning to find some of these expressions more acceptable. And maybe that's because our disrespect for God has been growing to the point where we don't take Him as seriously as we used to. Today I want you to look at the third commandment. I want you to take a new look at it. And I want you to notice that the subject material runs a lot deeper than just uttering God's name in a flippant or inappropriate way. Actually, the commandment doesn't even mention speaking at all, even though it seems fairly obvious that using God's name inappropriately in conversation absolutely falls within the purview of this commandment. But what it actually says is that God will not hold you guiltless if you take his name in vain. And that means there's something bigger at stake here than just the way you talk. So what does that mean? Well, it should be pretty obvious that you can't take God's name in vain if you don't know what it means to take God's name in the first place. So maybe one of the best places to start is with the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus really expands on the meaning of the Ten Commandments with a lot of detail. And down near the end, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus describes this situation where people call on the name of God, but they do it in vain. And it happens right after Jesus tells his audience how to identify false prophets. He says, therefore, by their fruits you will know them. And his whole point is this, actions speak louder than words. And that's when Jesus says something that directly relates to the third commandment. Now here it is, this is Matthew 7, beginning in verse 21. These are the words of Jesus. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Now, notice, these are people who have taken the name of Jesus. Verse 23, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, what does that have to do with the third commandment? Well, these are religious people. He's talking to people who prophesied in the name of Jesus, cast out demons in his name, even performed miracles in his name. But when it comes time to actually go into the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, I don't even know you. Why? Because it was all lip service. It was just an act. They publicly claimed the name of Jesus, but they were disobedient. They didn't do the things that God requires. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, heaven is a privilege reserved for people who do the will of God. And over in the book of Revelation chapter 14, you find this description of a last day group of people who are part of the family of Christ. They are members of his kingdom. And the way the Bible describes them is they have the Father's name written on their foreheads. And then the Bible says, these are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. That's Revelation 14, verse 4. It's this theme of obedience. Now, I want you to tuck that information, this description of God's last day people, behind one ear. Because in just a moment, we're going to come back and look at what this has to do with the third commandment. And what it might have to do with you. So, don't go away. I'll be right back. 
Hello, I'm Jean Boonstra. Do you feel as if you have more questions than answers in your life? Are you searching for answers to some of life's biggest questions? Well, the Discover Bible Guides can help you find the answers you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or call us at 888-456-7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions. Okay, we are back from the break. You are listening to The Voice of Prophecy. My name is Sean Boonstra, and just before the break, I was looking at Revelation chapter 14, where the Bible describes this group of people who have the Father's name written in their foreheads, and it describes them as people who are perfectly faithful to God. They follow the Lamb wherever He leads. In other words, these are people who not only say they love Jesus, but their actions prove it. These are obedient people, which is why the book of Hebrews says that Jesus is the author of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. You'll find that in Hebrews 5 verse 9. You see, it's it's not that you can earn your way into heaven by obeying God, because the Bible is crystal clear you can't. But at the same time, you won't be going to heaven if you willfully disobey God. Think of it like this. Let's say I go out and commit a crime, and I'm robbing a 7-Eleven. Now, I would never do that, but let's suppose, for the sake of argument, I'm robbing a 7-Eleven, and things go badly, and I shoot the clerk in the process. And they arrest me, and I'm convicted of murder. And I'm being sentenced to life in prison, or maybe even the gas chamber. And it's a sentence I absolutely deserve. I'm condemned by my sin. But suppose I beg the judge for mercy, and I say, Judge, I promise, if you just let me go, if you just overlook it this one time, I will never, ever, ever kill anybody again. From now on, I will stop killing. Now, you tell me, would the judge let me go with that? Would that get me off of the charges? Good behavior in the future? Would that solve my problem? Well, the obvious answer is absolutely not. Good behavior is something the law expects from everybody all the time. Promising to keep it doesn't answer the problem. It doesn't address the fact that I wasn't keeping it. Keeping the law in the future doesn't make up for breaking it in the past. You see, when God forgives us, He's forgiving us for breaking His law in the past. But we have to understand that keeping His law in the future is still His baseline expectation. Forgiveness is not a license to sin. Now, obedience won't pay for your past sins. Obedience can't earn you a spot in heaven. Obedience is just what God expects from us. In fact, obedience was the baseline expectation of the whole human race before anybody ever sinned. So, obedience can't earn you forgiveness. But let me tell you, willful disobedience will keep you out of the kingdom. And that's not my idea, that's what Jesus said. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. So over in Revelation 14, you have these people who have the name of God the Father in their foreheads. And a few verses later, there's another description of these people, one that makes it absolutely clear what kind of people they are. Here it is. It's Revelation 14, verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. If you're going to have the name of God, then your life is going to show that you trust Him. 
Your life is going to be a public declaration that obeying God means something. Your life will reflect the character of God because that's what God's name actually is. God's name is a description of His character. You know, on more than one occasion, I've had people come to me and say, Oh, Jesus can't come back the second time until his people learn to pronounce God's secret name correctly, his actual name. And they say it as if taking God's name correctly was just a matter of learning the right Hebrew word. Well, the problem with that kind of thinking, and and it should be obvious, but the problem with that kind of thinking is the way that God presents his name all through the Bible. There are lots and lots of variations. There isn't just one name. And why are there lots of variations? It's because there are lots of facets to his character. On some occasions, he's El Elyon, the Most High God. On other occasions, he's Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of Hosts. Each of God's names teaches us something different about his character. And character is really what's important here. In Exodus chapter 33 and 34, and these are chapters I've talked about on a number of other programs, but in those chapters we have what I consider to be one of the most important passages for understanding what the name of God actually is. See, this is the passage where he declares his name to Moses. That's what he says. And on that very occasion, God clearly equates his name with his character. The Lord God, he says, as he declares his name, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty. God's name is his character. If you have the name of God written on your forehead, then your life is going to reflect the character of God. You will become a living picture of him. People will be able to learn about God just by getting to know you. Now, take that information back to the third commandment and read it again. Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So, what does it actually mean to take God's name in vain? If you call yourself a believer, but... Your life suggests to everyone around you that it's just lip service, then you are breaking the third commandment. And God says He won't hold you guiltless if you do that. You, you see, a fallen angel has raised questions about the government of God. A fallen angel has raised questions about God's fitness to be on the throne of the universe. And when you and I claim to be part of God's family, The universe actually watches us. I mean, there's this great battle, this great controversy raging in the universe between fallen angels and the kingdom of heaven. When you and I claim to be part of his family, the universe actually watches us to see if it makes a difference to follow God. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says that you and I are a spectacle to the world and to angels. He's actually speaking to apostles, but it applies to all of us. He says we are on display in front of the whole universe. You see, the reason the devil loves to trip you up and get you to sin is not just to get you to do bad things. That's not the whole motivation. He does it because he can actually use your example after you stumble to discredit the whole government of God. He can point to you and say, look, that's a follower of God. That's where his kingdom gets you. You see, the whole subject in this universe ultimately isn't you. The subject is God. The real question is not whether or not you're worthy, because none of us are. The question is whether or not God is worthy. It's a little like this whole business with Donald Sterling. I don't know if you remember that scandal. 
But the NBA said, look, you have to sell your team and we're banning you for life. Now, what was the real issue in that whole thing? Well, ostensibly, they banned him and they took his team away because Donald Sterling is a racist, because he said something really distasteful. But let's look at it objectively. The real reason the NBA took such drastic steps had nothing to do with Donald Sterling and his character. I mean, what do they care what he's like? They knew that if they didn't take some kind of action, Donald Sterling's actions could bring disrepute on the whole organization. That's why everybody cared, whether you were a member of his team or not. You see, the whole thing is a matter of branding. I mean, just think about the risk that God takes by letting us publicly take his name and become members of his church. When priests go out and abuse children, when televangelists embezzle money or get involved in a sex scandal, it throws the whole Christian church into a bad light. And when you and I declare ourselves to be followers of Christ, but we go out and live like the devil, well, I'm sure you're getting the point. You and I can't actually diminish the eternal character of God. We can't bring him down a notch. But in the minds of other people that are watching us, that's exactly what we're doing. We're diminishing the picture of God that they have. In the minds and hearts of people who are still out there looking for God, you and I are branding heaven with our own behavior. They're evaluating what kind of a difference it actually made in our lives. Now, in just a moment, we're going to take a look at a powerful story in the Old Testament that illustrates just how important this whole idea of branding is. I'll be right back. Hello, I'm Jean Boonstra. Do you feel as if you have more questions than answers in your life? Like, where is God when people suffer? Or can I find real happiness? And is there any hope for our chaotic world? Are you searching for answers to these and other of life's biggest questions? Well, the Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers that you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or give us a call at 888-456-7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides. You can choose to study in the format that's most convenient for you. You may either do the lessons completely online or have them mailed right to your home. Both options are completely free of charge. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions. And welcome back to the show. This is the Voice of Prophecy, and today we're looking at the Third Commandment. And just before we took that break, I was talking about this whole issue of branding. When you and I take the name of God and tell the world that we're believers, then in the minds of people around us, God gets branded with our behavior. It's one of the reasons that church scandals are so damaging. Everyone knows that the people involved in the scandal claim to be God's people. And their behavior actually discredits the gospel in the minds of millions of people. Now, it's not that you and I can actually discredit the gospel. There's nothing we can do to ultimately damage God, because God's character is unassailable. And the work of Christ at the cross, well, that's irreversible. We can't really diminish that in reality. But because we are expected to live as God's ambassadors, you and I are expected to exhibit His values to the world. God takes a huge risk by making us His representatives. I mean, think of the potential for disaster in His efforts to win the world to His kingdom. Obviously, this is a much bigger issue than just cussing. When I was a kid, I was taught that the third commandment had to do with the way that we 
speak. It was a prohibition against speaking God's name inappropriately. But this is not just a matter of the words we speak. This is also a matter of the way we live. If this was just a matter of offending people with your language, you might expect to find this commandment in the second table, where you have all the laws that deal with your relationship to other people. You know, you shall not kill, you shall not steal. But this commandment is actually located in the first table, where you have laws that deal with your relationship to God. You shall have no other gods. You shall not worship a graven image. Remember the Sabbath day. These are commands that deal with your relationship to God. So in its deepest sense, the third commandment is a commandment that teaches us what it means to live in a personal relationship with God. It teaches us what it means to worship Him. And if we don't live like our hearts belong to Christ, when you and I refuse to live in an obedient relationship, then the devil pounces and uses you as one more example of why God should not be in charge. Actually, there's a story in the Old Testament that makes this point in a dramatic vision given to the prophet Zechariah. I want you to listen to this. It comes from Zechariah 3 and verse 1. Then he showed me. Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. Now, this was written in a moment in Israel's history when they were not reflecting the character of God. They weren't showing the world what God was like. In fact, Israel had been dabbling with pagan religion. So when it came time to answer for what they had done, God uses the high priest as a symbol to represent the whole nation. And the devil is right there to serve as the prosecution in this case. Oh, this man, this nation, it's obviously guilty, the devil says. Now, never mind the fact that the devil was also guilty. Never mind the fact that the devil helped them down the road. In this moment, that doesn't matter. All that matters is that God's people had taken his name in vain. They had failed to reflect his character. They had failed to live up to their half of the covenant. So the devil is there to oppose them, to fight against their redemption. That's why the devil is called the accuser of the brethren in the book of Revelation. He makes it his business to point out your flaws, not because he cares about how you behave, but because he can use your behavior to discredit the kingdom of God. Now, if that's the case, I don't know of a human being who has not broken the third commandment. I mean, I can't think of anybody outside of Jesus himself who has not failed to display the perfect character of God. Now, Jesus could say that he kept his Father's commandments, and he did say that. But I can't say it. Not only has my mouth been a problem, but my behavior as a professing Christian has been a problem, too. And and that's where the rest of Zechariah's vision now comes into play. You see, God knows the devil's game. And he has little patience for the way the devil uses you and me. Listen to what it says now, starting in verse 2. This is Zechariah 3, verse 2. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord, who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? You'll notice that God is well aware of Jerusalem's sin. He knows what she did. She's a city plucked from the fire, and the Lord rebukes the devil for trying to cash in on a bad situation. Verse 3. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, 
and I will clothe you with rich robes. Now this is where we get to see the beauty of the gospel, given to us years before Jesus was born. God knows we're guilty. He knows that our lives do not measure up. But in spite of that, He forgives us, and He removes our filthy garments, and He covers us with the righteousness of His Son. He considers us clean and pure and holy, not because we are, but because of Jesus. This is the same kind of imagery you find in the book of Revelation, where the redeemed of God are dressed in pure white robes. They only have those robes because of the righteousness of Christ. Now, I'm going to continue in Zechariah 3, verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways, and if you will keep my command, then you shall also judge my house, and likewise have charge of my courts. I will give you places to walk among these who stand here. You see, when when God forgives you, He promises to give you a place among those who walk in the kingdom of heaven. He promises to restore you to what we used to be before we sinned. And He still, at this moment, expects you to live your life in a way that people can find Jesus just by watching you. It's not that you're never going to make a mistake. Trust me, you will. You will need forgiveness. But let me say, there's a huge difference between tripping up once in a while and willfully continuing in sin. It's the difference when you're learning to ride a bike between falling off once in a while as you're learning or refusing to ride at all. It's a difference between the occasional accident and taking your bike and tossing it into the lake. One is your sinful nature tripping you up. The other is stubborn refusal to follow. This is why God says He won't hold you guiltless if you take His name in vain, if you have no intention of following Him. He can't forgive a sin that you won't confess and repent of. He can't forgive a sin you have no intention of quitting, because you aren't repenting of it. God can't forgive an unrepentant heart. The book of 1 John tells us, If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous. If you've sinned, if you've slipped up, if you are now ready to come to God, you have a lawyer to plead your case. And he's God in human flesh, the one human being who has never sinned. And in that same passage, it tells us, Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. And really, that's the heart of the issue with the third commandment. Does your life say you know Jesus? Can the universe see that you're following Christ? Or does it look like you're stubbornly clinging to your own sins and your own agenda? There is a provision for sin. There is forgiveness through Jesus. And there's this incredible opportunity to live your life so that other people will recognize that God is real. And maybe by watching you, Someone else can find forgiveness. Because God knows we all need it. Thank you for listening today. I'm Sean Boonstra. You've been listening to The Voice of Prophecy. Hello, I'm Jean Boonstra. Well, just like Sean, I can remember my early readings of the book of Revelation. I'll admit my reading created more curiosity and questions than it did answers. The language of the book can be overwhelming without a guide, and so I'm glad you've joined us as we begin to study together through the book of Revelation. It's a message of hope from our Savior Jesus and a promise of His soon return. 
Well, if you have a lot of questions and curiosity about the Bible like I did, then I know where you can begin to find answers. The Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers that you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or give us a call at our toll-free number, 888-456-7933, for your free Discover Bible Guides. The 26 Discover Guides cover a whole range of subjects, including the ones we've been talking about today. Guide number 12 is one of my favorites. It shares the message of Scripture that we have an ever-present Savior. And in guide number 10, discover the answer to a vital question. How soon will Jesus return? Study online at our website, BibleStudies.com, or have the free guides mailed right to your home. There is never a cost or obligation. The Discover Bible Guides are our free gift to you. So give us a call at 888-456-7933 or visit us online to begin your journey to discover answers to life's deepest questions.